Hey, Bay Hills. Pastor's doing the bird box challenge today. Uh huh. Help me out. I'm gonna, you know, I almost fell off the stage first service. I need some help. Could someone, someone from the front come help me get me to the stand? Oh, scared the living daylights out of me. Where am I going? Where's my stand? Back up a little bit. Back up. Is that Robert Castile? It is. No, free offering for you today. You don't have to put anything in the offering. Back up a little bit. Back up, Back up more? Right there. You're good. Is this good? Do I look good? You look good. Okay. Hey, so how, how many of you are familiar with the Bird Box Challenge? I actually I can't see your hands. So it, does, I don't. It, uh, it is based upon a movie that's on Netflix right now. It was released in November. Uh, it's called Bird Box. It stars Sandra Bullock. And it, it's not, I don't think it was that great of a movie. It's a story about... Uh, uh, like a, this mysterious evil force that will kill you if you make eye contact with it, if you look at it. So Sandra Bullock and her kids spend most of the movie, well, blindfolded. You probably have a picture on the screen right now. So she's trying to row a boat blindfolded and make a journey blindfolded. Well, people around the country thought this was hilarious, and they decided to do the bird box challenge. They put on a uh, blindfold like I have and do everyday normal activities, and people, you know, they film them on their phones, and then they put it on social media, right? And it's a ton of fun. But did you know that Netflix has actually put out a warning telling people not to do bird box challenges? Did you know that? Did you know that YouTube not only has put out a warning, but they have criteria of what you're allowed to post on their site when it comes to this challenge, right? Do you know why? It's kind of obvious, right? It's funny to watch someone with a blindfold try and get, make their way around a stage or whatever, feed their kid, brush their teeth. It's really funny until someone gets hurt, until someone gets hurt. Did you know that there have been several fatalities, people trying to do the bird box challenge? Have you heard about this? So let me tell you why I'm doing this this morning, right? Because I, I, I got a point. Here's the question that I want to ask you this morning. When it comes to eternity... When it comes to your death, which is coming, are you wearing a blindfold? Would you prefer to just not talk about the subject, not think about the subject, not consider the subject? Because understandably, your own death is not something we enjoy talking about or thinking about. But in doing so, some of us are wearing a blindfold uh, for something that is incredibly significant and important. We're just kind of winging it. We're kind of hoping it works out on the other side of our death. We're, we're in a series. This is week, week three of our series, So You're Dead, Now What? Right? And, and here's what we're trying to do in this series. You read, watch. Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, trying to take off the blindfold. Because it's far too important and far too significant because your day is coming some of you, a lot sooner than you actually think. You have to be ready. You have to be ready. I want to encourage you, if this is week one, you're joining us, could I encourage you, go online and listen to the podcast or watch the, the videos week one and two. Last week, we covered a very difficult, very emotionally charged and heart-wrenching topic of hell. This morning, thank goodness, we get to look at the flip side of the coin. If you grab your study guide this morning, we're talking about heaven. We're talking about heaven and what scripture has to say about heaven, okay? Now, 
Um, as we jump in, the, I'm going to spend most of my time on the back side uh, of, of, the, of the study guide. But real quickly, I want to give you four big picture ideas when it comes to heaven. Number one is heaven is an actual place. It's not a state of mind. It's not just we're floating in the air. No, Scripture says that it is an actual location. Jesus said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Amen. It's an actual place. Second thing is that it is the place where God lives and rules, okay? He lives there and he rules. Now, you got to be careful with this one because we understand scripture to say that he is omnipresent. So technically, he lives everywhere. It's the second word that you also have to combine and understand. It's this idea that he rules in heaven, right? Think about the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why, why are we taught to pray that? Because God's will always doesn't get done on earth. We don't always do God's will, but in heaven, God's will always gets done. Look at the verse, Psalm 123, verse 1 says, God is omnipotent, but in heaven, uh, uh, Lord, I look up to you, up to heaven, where you rule, where you rule. The third thing I want you to know about heaven is that it is incredible and unimaginable. It's, it, you, can't even, you can't even conceive of what heaven is going to be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul says this, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, speaking of heaven, no mind has ever even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Back in 1989, a song was uh, pr- produced and written called I Can Only Imagine. It was released in 2001. If you were around church at the time, we sang it way too much. Uh, but the lyrics are very good. This is what the, uh, speaking of this place that God is preparing for us, I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I even be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. And one of the things that we are actually encouraged to do is do just that. Imagine what he's doing and what he's preparing for us. The fourth thing that you need to understand about heaven, big picture, is that it is where only the redeemed go. This is so important. You need to understand that heaven is not where the good people go. Heaven is where redeemed people go. And you need to understand what that word redeem means. It means to pay a price to freedom, to pay a price to bring about freedom. There's a story that is told, and we, we don't think it's an actual story. We think it's more of a fable, but it illustrates powerfully what this word means and what God has done for you and for me. It's a story about a bridge operator. And, and, and his job is to, 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 to raise the ridge and lower a bridge, and raise the ridge and lower the bridge. And the reason for that is there's a river underneath the bridge. <coughs> and so the boats go, go by underneath, and when the boats go by, he's got to raise the, the bridge. But on top of the bridge, there's, there's train tracks, so he's got to lower the bridge so the train can cross. And that's his entire job. Well, on one particular Saturday morning, uh, this bridge operator decides to take his, his eight-year-old, seven-year-old kid to work with him. He figured he can hang out with him. He could skip rocks along the river. They can have lunch together. Good time, father, son. And uh, around 1130, he looks at his clock. He knows that a passenger train is going to come, so he's going to have to lower the bridge. So he heads up to the, to the control little booth center area, and, and he's looking around, and he's doing his check sheets, and he looks over, and to his horror, he sees that his son 
His seven, eight-year-old son has climbed over the fence, has climbed over to where the gears are for, for the bridge, and his, his shirt is stuck into the bridge, and he can't release himself. He's just horrified because he knows that if, and if he lowers the bridge, it, the gears will literally crush and kill his son. So he considers very quickly what to do, and very quickly he realizes, I don't have enough time to go down and release him and come back up and lower the bridge. You can see and hear the train coming. So he has two options. Option number one, to lower the bridge, which will result in the death of my son, or to not lower the bridge, save his son, but then the train plunges into the river, killing hundreds. And he's got to make a quick decision. He pauses, he closes his eyes, he yells and screams out and pushes the lever down and the bridge goes down. His son is instantly killed. That story is used to convey what the word redeemed means and what God the Father through his son did for you. He was willing for his son to die and be sacrificed so that you and I can cross on the train on top of the river. The word redeem means to pay the price. In this case, to pay the price for sin so that you and I don't have to pay the penalty of sin. And the people that get to go to heaven are the ones that understand that. They understand that God the Father, he didn't want his son to die. Why would, he, why would any father want that? He agonized over it. But he was willing to go along with that plan. And so was the son, so that you and I could embrace what Christ did and be with him in heaven. That's what the word redeem means. And you having to embrace that and accept that is part of you making your reservation for heaven. Critically important that you understand that. 1 Corinthians 15, for sin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, think of the bridge operator, thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We just sang it. We just sang the song. Death has lost its grip on me. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Now, at the bottom of the first page, uh, it's also important to talk about what's not in heaven. What's not in heaven. If you have your phones or your Bibles, you want to turn to Revelation chapter 21. I want to just read uh, five verses, first five verses, and then verse 27 for you. I'll also have it for you on the screen, but I always on encourage you to follow it in your own Bible if you'd like. John is speaking of the vision he sees of heaven, and he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea there. Now, let's just time out real quick, because some of us are going, oh, I like rivers. I like the ocean and the sea. Why is, it, why is there not going to be any more sea? You have to understand, if you're in our discipleship class that we're studying Bible study methodology, we talked about genre this week. And you have to understand that apocalyptic literature or the genre of revelation is a way to be very descriptive to try and get underneath ideas. He's not literally saying there's not going to be oceans or seas. Here's what he's getting after. You have to understand that in the days of Jesus, the sea was considered to be one of the most, if not the most dangerous place to go and be. So if your husband or your brother or your, 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 your friend worked on a boat and they went out to sea, you might as well kiss them goodbye because there's a chance there's not coming back. It represented fear for them. It represented death for them. And so John figuratively saying here, there's no more of that. There's no more of that. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. He's speaking of us, the church. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. So now here comes what's not there. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And now skipping ahead to verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor anyone will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And those are the people that are redeemed, the people that have embraced and accepted Jesus. Now, on the bottom of your study guide, I've given you a list of what's not in heaven. There's six things that are not in heaven for sure. There's no sin in heaven. There's no sadness in heaven, no suffering in heaven, no death in heaven, no fear in heaven. There's the, there's the no more seed part. And there's no more sickness in heaven. No more sickness. Some of you know, maybe you don't know, I have a rare form of arthritis and I've had it for like 15 years or so and I got to deal with it and go in and get injections, get IVs. And if I do that, I feel good. If I don't, I don't feel good at all. Well, this past November, my specialty doctor uh, retired, right? And so now I have to go through the, the jump through the hoops of getting a new doctor and a new specialist and it is not fun, right? And so I called this week to make an appointment uh, because some of my meds are off a little bit. I got to fix that. And so uh, I called and, and, and I asked for an appointment and there was a pause. I could tell they're kind of looking at the computer. And, and then she says this to me, well, we can fit you in March the 4th. And I'm like, March the 4th? How about like tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, right? And she says, you know, Dr. Goldfein, that's my doctor that retired, Dr. Goldfein had 1,300 patients that were trying to fit in. And I go, oh, you know what? My bad. I didn't tell you the most important part. I was Dr. Goldfein's favorite patient of all 1,300. (laughs) I said, it should be in the notes right there. I actually said that. I'm trying to sweet talk my way into an appointment this week, right? Well, I'm going on March the 4th is when my appointment is, right? But I, I was, it was in the middle of, I took a break to make that call, and then I got back to my study, and I started thinking, you know what's going to happen when in heaven you call Kaiser? You're going to call Kaiser for an appointment. You know what they're going to say? Come on down. We don't have anyone here. There's no one here. And some of you are thinking, oh, I don't even think there's going to be a Kaiser in heaven, Pastor. <laughs> there will be. You know, wait a second. It says no more sickness. You and I will have glorified bodies. But what about if we twist our ankle? Are we going to be able to twist our ankle in heaven? It, who said that? How do you know? How do you, I think if we twist our ankle, I'm going to Kaiser, right? I'm going to walk right in, twisted ankle, right? Beside that, there's no more sickness, though. That's the point. None of this. None of this. Now, here's where I want to spend the time. On the backside of your study guide, I want to give you eight pictures, snapshots of heaven, okay? Eight pictures of of heaven. Why, why do I want to do that? You know, what I've discovered as I'm observing Christians, us, is that I, I, don't, I get the sense that we're not as excited about heaven as I think we should be. I get the sense when I talk to some of you that we have the impression that heaven's going to be one long church service. <laughs> we're all going to go to the library and read the Bible, 
right? We're going to walk in the garden and pray. All that. And I, it, so we believe theologically that heaven is good, but we don't have a full enough picture of heaven to actually want to go there. You see what I'm saying? My job this morning is that when you walk out of here, you are more excited about being in heaven than when you walked in. And for me to do that, I need to give you a, a fuller picture of what heaven's going to be like. You need to understand this because the minute you understand that you're going to want it, you're going to want it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to base it upon this book. And you go, well, that duh, that's what you normally do every week. I know. But when it comes to this particular topic, what I have found is that there are many Christians that base their theology and understanding of hell and heaven, not just on this book, but also on these books. Go online, go to Amazon, dozens and dozens and dozens of books that have these titles. I went to heaven, I went to hell, and they come back and they tell their story. Here's what, here's the people writing these books, here's what happens. So it's the guy that is on the operating table, and they, they die, clinically die on the operating table. Their heart stops working for whatever, 11 minutes, right? And, and the doctors are working to save them, and the paddles and everything they do, right? And they bring them back right? And they live again. Well, then that person tells their story of what they experienced during those 11 minutes. And they're saying, I went to heaven or I went to hell and this is what happened. And they, and they write the books, right? So it's kind of interesting. The first book, To Hell and Back, is written by a guy called Dr. Maurice Rollins. He is a cardiologist at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. And uh, after talking to dozens of his patients that have gone through this right? He didn't go through it, but they went through it, and they tell his story. This is what he writes. Just listening to these patients has changed my life. There is life after death. I would agree with that. And if you don't know where you're going, it is not safe to die. I would agree with that as well. Wouldn't you? So he writes his book and his tale, right? Now, the next book, 23 Minutes in Hell, that's an interesting book. That was written by a guy who watched the first half of the Super Bowl, and then he wrote that book. There it is, 23 minutes and... <laughs> so, oh, so let me talk about the other books. You want to know why I need to talk about this? You want to know who's buying all these books? Christians. It's all Christians. We are gobbling this stuff up, and we think it's the greatest thing. Oh, we want to find out what heaven is like, right? We're reading all these books. Now, Every once in a while, I have someone come say to me, and they have one of these books or something like it in their hand, Pastor, what do you think of this? Let me give you my answer. I'm suspicious. And let me tell you why. I don't, I get the impression that at the conference room in heaven, right, God's called the meeting, he's got the agenda, you know, the Trinity is there, the Father, the Son, I don't know, Moses and Abraham, they're also there, right? And Jesus says, okay, um, you know, real quick, I've been... uh, I've been reading through the Bible, and I, I don't think I put enough in here about heaven and hell. So you know what I've decided? I've decided we're, I'm, I'm going to, like, kill people, bring them back, send them to heaven, and then they can help everyone out. Do you think he's doing that? I don't either. I really don't. I don't think that happened. I don't think God thinks he didn't put enough in here. Now, is it wrong to read these books? I don't think it is. But you better not base your theology on those books. And that's what concerns me. Don't base your doctrine on it, right? All these books are very interesting. And maybe possibly a little bit of it is true. 
But this book is inspired and completely true. So read that out of interest's sake, but base your theology on this. Does that make sense? Okay. Before we jump in, I want to give you a quote from a guy called D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an American pastor, revivalist, and here's what he says. It is not the jeweled walls and the pearly gates that are going to make heaven attractive. It's being with God. It's being with God. Now, I get this. I hope you get this as well. But again, what I'm finding is that most of us don't think about this and necessarily get excited about it. Now, there may be some issues in terms of our growth that we need to work on. But besides that, I think one of the reasons we're not excited about heaven is we have not taken the time to look at a full picture of some of the other things that we also get to do in heaven. This is by far the most important. I couldn't agree with D.L. Moody more. The best part of heaven is you and me interacting with God face to face. But, and don't think I'm flippant when I go over these lists, because I'm going to give you seven other things that you and I get to do. Seven other things that I think will help make you more excited about heaven. And then when you really get to number eight, which is what we're going to talk about, being with God, It'll just take it over the top. Does that make sense what we're going to do this morning? Eight things. I want to encourage you to write them down. Number one is there's fabulous beauty in heaven. Fabulous beauty. So Jesus is on the cross. He's got a thief on either side. One of them comes to the conclusion, Jesus is the Messiah, right? And he, quote, gets saved. What does Jesus say to him? Truly, today, you will be with me in, you'll be with me in paradise. He's talking about heaven. Question, when I say the word paradise, what do you think about? Think about, what do you think about? You want to know what I think about? This is what I think about it. Let's put it on the screen. Huh? Paradise? That's what I think about. I'm sitting on a Caribbean beach, soft sand, glassy water, Nemo's skipping around, dolphins, right? I have a private waiter that's bringing me appetizers and Mai Tais for Sandy, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Paradise. Now, for you, paradise might be a mountain range. Paradise might be a forest, whatever it is for you. But there's a reason that Jesus uses that word, paradise. Now, then you combine what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, and listen, whatever you're thinking about when the word paradise gets mentioned It's not even close to how good it really is. John says in Revelation chapter 19, the the streets are paved with gold. You know, something that we value, they they use it as as asphalt there. And some people say, again, Revelation, we're not sure that that's literal. Or is that John just saying, I I don't know any ways to explain it, but I'm picking the analogy that best represents the most incredible, the most beautiful unimaginable thing I've ever seen. And when you think about it, Jesus created this world, which is pretty cool. He created this world in six days. He's been working on heaven for 2,000 years. Incredible beauty. The second thing in heaven is that we all get fine-tuned bodies, and everyone over the age of 50 said, amen, "Amen, I know. (laughs) Something to look forward to. Now, we looked at this work week one. We looked at it week one, And the idea in Corinthians 15 is that you and I will receive glorified bodies. Now, these are not just spiritual bodies that are floating around. No, they have flesh, they have blood, right? Um, 
They are comparable to the resurrected body of Christ, we are told, but we're not going to have, you know, we don't have unlimited strength like he has, right? But, but they're, they're a significant upgrade from what we have now, significant upgrade. And, and you know, I kind of was joking about people over 50, but the reality is, is that those of us that are especially looking forward to this are those who are getting or feeling a little bit older, huh? Someone sent me this thing. How do you, how do you know if you qualify for that? Well, here it is. Someone sent me this. You're getting old if you get winded playing chess. <laughs> You're getting old if you straighten out the wrinkles in your socks, then you realize you aren't wearing any socks. <laughs> You're getting old if the pacemaker also opens the garage door. You're getting old if people call you at 9 p.m. and ask, did we wake you? That's happened to me. Last one. You're getting old if you have more hair in your ears than your head. Oh, yay. You're going to get a significant upgrade in your body. Significant upgrade. Number three is you're going to have a fantastic house. Again, you go, again, it sounds flippant compared to we're going to be with God. But again, we just skip over this. Don't skip over it. Don't go too quickly. I'll get to being in the presence of God. But we are told that it is a city. We are told in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer says, I'm looking forward to this. Why? Because, because God is not only the architect, he's also the builder. He's not, he's not giving this to subcontractors, right? If you're a subcontractor, we love you. We're glad you're here. God's doing all the building and the architecture. Well, what do you think he's going to build? Let's do what Paul told us to do. Let's imagine for a moment, what kind of house, what kind of castle, what kind of palace would you like to live in for eternity? Some of you, it is, it's huge. Some of, for others, it's maybe a little smaller, but quaint, right? I was, I was thinking, I want, I want an outdoor pool with like water slides, and I want an indoor pool. I want a jacuzzi in my room, hardwood floors, tile. I want a kitchen with marble on it. I want a bathroom the size of this stage, Right? My house, I'm going to have someone come three times a day to clean it. Once a month, they change out the furniture just because. <laughs> I, I can't even get close to imagining what he's going to do. And neither can you. But you're going to have a castle, house, palace to live in. Number four, there's going to be food to die for. How many of you like to eat? How many of you don't like to eat? Leave. Go. We don't want you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> do you realize... When you read scripture, faith and food, do you realize how often they go together? Last summer, we had a whole series. I don't know, dinner with Jesus or eating with Jesus. I don't know what we called it. But it's all the stories in the gospels of when Jesus did something incredible and special in the context of food. You say, why are you making a big deal about this? Because scripture makes a big deal about this. And oh, by the way, there's a reason he gave you taste buds. He wants you to enjoy what you're eating, not just be nourished by what you're eating. He didn't have to give you taste buds. But that alone should tell you something about who he is and what he wants for you. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Exclamation point. Why the exclamation point? Well, the emphasis certainly has to be on who's doing the inviting or who's the honored guest. The Lamb as in Jesus. But you see, the exclamation point also qualifies all the rest of the sentence as well. So while it's emphasizing the lamb and Jesus, why can't it also emphasize the meal, the feast, the supper, or what we call dinner? We're going to get to eat anything and everything. We're going to have meals prepared for us by the greatest chefs, gourmet meals all the time. 
I started thinking, well, what do I want? I want filet mignon, lobster anytime, Spanish paella, Italian spaghetti, Mexican fajitas, Thanksgiving turkey, Lorenzo's gumbo, desserts from Cheesecake Factory, and the best part, all the bread and carbs you want, but they have miraculously taken the calories out. That's what you and I get to enjoy. The fifth thing is there'll be a great family reunion. Now, I realize that the message is not the best to do Bible study from, but it's very interesting devotionally to read it. Regarding the question, friends, that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried, we don't want you in the dark any longer. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who have died. Now, I got to just go back to week one. Don't forget, when you die, it's not like you just don't have consciousness anymore. Your body and your soul separate, and in Christ, you immediately go to be with him. What this is talking about is that at Christ's second coming, your soul gets reunited now with a glorified body. Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here. And notice what he says. Notice how he explains it. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Christ. There will be a huge family reunion with the master. For those of us who have loved ones that have passed, and for those who have loved ones that are, were in Christ, this is something to look forward to. Amen. I'm looking forward to seeing all my grandparents. They've all passed. I didn't get to know them that well because I lived in Spain pretty much my entire life. I'm looking forward to seeing um, a couple of my uncles, a couple of my friends. The family reunion for those that we are gone, that are in Christ, and we get to be reunited. It's going to be special. It should be special. This next one I think is interesting, and it's worth mentioning. Number six, we will have friendship and relationship with biblical characters. You know, I got the privilege to go to Israel when I was in college. I was there for a month doing a study thing. And it was just amazing how your Bible came to life, right? You see, you're at where they did certain things and where certain things happen. It's just cool, right? Can you imagine how cool it's going to be to talk to people that were actually in the Bible stories? Think about that. Think about the details they're going to give us. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Many will come from the east and the west. It's talking about heaven. Many will come from the east and the west. They will take their places at the feast of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You're going to get to meet all these Bible characters. I'm looking forward to talking to David and seeing how he, his story about how he picked a fight with Goliath. You know, I want to talk to, to Noah. I want, what was the boat like? And did it smell bad with all the animals? And, you know, I want to talk to Peter. That's the guy I want to talk to. He seems cool, cutting people's ears off. And, you know, what was that all about? And notice that it's in the context of a feast. It's in the context of the meal. Kind of like Thanksgiving, you're sitting around, you're all talking, and you're, they're telling stories right in the context of the feast. You know, Moses, hey, you know, you want some more manna? You know, Eve, quit hogging the fruit. Lot, you want some salt? I'm just kidding, Lot, just messing with you. Some of you guys will get that a little later on. Number seven, there will be all kinds of fun activities. John chapter 14, Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Now, you combine that with Corinthians 1, or chapter 2. When, when, Commentators are looking at that phrase, many rooms. The first instinct is for commentators to say this. It references the idea that there's a lot of space in heaven. There's not a a capped number of rooms, right? 
And once those rooms are full, sorry, no vacancy. No, there's plenty of room. But the more you dig, it's interesting to say, see what commentators are also saying about this phrase. They're saying that this phrase, many rooms, also implies and suggests that in God's house are many activities. Like I said, we're, we're not just sitting around in the garden. We're not just floating on clouds. We're not just going to church service. There's many things to do. And so I got thinking, well, what are some of the things we're going to do? I don't know, maybe there's an exploratory room where you can sign up to visit planets. Maybe there's an instructional room. You can learn to play the piano like Beethoven or paint like Monet. Maybe there's a sports room and you can shoot a perfect golf score. Or you, we can play baseball. Everybody gets to hit a home run. Maybe there's an instant replay room where we can relive some of the most important historical events and watch and see what happened. I'm certain there's going to be a zoology room. There are implication in verses that there will be animals right? You get to see all these different animals and pet them. There will be a spa room. There will be a learning room. And for those of you who have preschool kids, you'll be happy to know there's going to be a quiet room. You could just be quiet in there. (laughs) Here's what you need to understand. And I don't think some of us get this. The last thing heaven will be is boring. It is just going to be a rush of what you get to do and enjoy. You have to understand that everything you do now that you enjoy, God created that desire within you. Of course, the things that are sinful, we don't get to do anymore, and you'll realize why even more when you get there. But you will get so much to do in heaven. Be an absolute bless. Of course, one of the activities that is also special about heaven is the worship. When there is fellowship with God, and every tongue and every tribe and every color of skin and every language will bow a knee and worship Christ. Revelation 21 says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will be their God. Guys, heaven will be filled with fabulous beauty. You'll have a fine-tuned body. You'll have a fantastic house food to die for, family reunion, friendship with biblical characters, fun activities, and most importantly, fellowship with God. Is that something to look forward to? Yes. It's something to look forward to. Why are we talking about this? I'm going to bring this up over and over again. The main principle of our series is this. Let's put it on the screen. It's this idea that, listen, whatever you believe about the afterlife, whatever you believe about what happens after you die is going to impact and affect your life. It should. And in this case, the glory of heaven should impact you. It should influence you. It should change you. It should motivate you. I'm going to have Pablo come up and we're going to wrap up in a second, but there's two verses I want to give you for application sake. And be really specific what I want you to do. Colossians chapter 3 says this. Let heaven fill your thoughts. And my question to you is, does it? Does it? Because again, this is just me observing. I see a lot of people wearing a blindfold. We're focused on the here and the now and the tomorrow. And we're not focused on, on the eternal. Let heaven fill your thoughts. It's interesting that verse goes on to say, 
And don't be so worried about everything going on in life. Now, listen, I get it. You have responsibilities, so do I. We have a to-do list of things we need to get done. But what are you focused on? What are you thinking about? What are you longing for? Heaven needs to be a part of that, a significant part of that. And then for those of you who are seeking in your spiritual journey, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, God has set eternity, or heaven, in your heart. He's given you and hardwired a desire within you to want to be with him for eternity in heaven. There's a bird called the Pacific Golden Plover. Pacific Golden Plover. And this bird lives in Alaska during the summer months and then lives in Hawaii during the winter months. Pretty smart guy. But what's interesting about this bird is, is not, it sounds like a lot of flying back and forth, but what's also interesting is the mating practices and, and, and how their chicklings are birthed. So what they do is they, they bury the eggs, mom and papa or whatever, right? And then mom and dad leave, even before the eggs are hatched. They just leave, go back to Hawaii. Eventually, those little eggs, they hatch, and the little fledglings come out, and they start to grow, and they get their wing strength, and so on and so forth. And here's what's fascinating. You want to know what those birds do? Have never, having never been in Hawaii, you want to know what they do? They fly 1,200 miles and reunite with their parents, having never even been there. If there's not proof that God has hardwired unique things within this world, I don't know if at that... By the way, if you're in junior high and someone calls you a bird brain, just tell them this story. That's a compliment. I don't know what they call that, a homing device. I don't know. But likewise, your heavenly Father has done the same thing for you. He has given you this desire to be in a place you've never been He's hardwired within you the desire and the instinct to be with him forever. But you got to make a reservation. You got to be redeemed. Forget about being good for the moment. You got to be redeemed. I want to break it down for you and be especially clear. What do I want you to do? Colossians 3, Ecclesiastes 3. There's a couple things I want to encourage you to do. Let's put it on the slide. Some of us need to shift our priorities. Guys, what are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your thought life? What is coming should cause you to shift and change what really matters. Get, get, get rid of the blindfold. You now have heard and know the truth about what's coming. You've been told by Christ himself, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. That means you shift priorities. And for those of you who are here that have never engaged Christ in a personal relationship, it's important you make reservations for heaven and accept Him as Savior. It involves doing three things. Confessing your sin. That shouldn't be hard. You all know you, all know you got it. So do I. Confess your sin. Two, trust in Jesus. Specifically, His sacrifice on the cross. What God the Father did is the bridge operator and what His Son did so that you can be redeemed and the price of sin be paid for. And then choosing to follow God. Now, a lot of times when I invite people to accept Christ, 
I'll pray the prayer for you. I'm not going to do it today. But I will leave that slide up on the screen. And in a moment when we pray, you can peek and you can look. And my, my challenge is pray those three things. Don't let today go by without making a reservation for heaven. I'm sinful. I trust in Jesus. I choose to follow God. Let's pray. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to ask this question. Why did God want you here this morning? What did He want you to hear? What does He want you to do? Are you that person that is more consumed with, more focused on this earth than on eternity? Maybe God brought you here because He wants you to make a shift. Maybe He brought you here because He wants you to make a reservation. You figure it out. You got 30 seconds, deep breath. What does God want you to do with what you learned? Heavenly Father, I've known the theological truths of Scripture. I've I've read the verses before, but what you impressed upon me this week is it's not just about what I know intellectually about heaven, but also what consumes my mind, what energizes my soul. It's how I feel about what's happening, not just what I think about what's happening. And you impressed upon my heart this week about how incredible heaven's going to be. I can, only, I can only imagine how great it's going to be. Father, I confess that I and others, we, we have lived for today. We have lived for the here and now. And we have not longed for heaven. Father, teach us to balance loving life, squeezing the most out of life, but focused on what you have for us for eternity. We can only imagine what you have for us.